integrating that wonderful worship song with what it means uh, to love our government from Romans 13. And bless you. And uh, so as a young youth pastor, um, I was teaching an early morning before school Bible study with some high school kids. And uh, it was my turn to teach. And while I'm going to the Bible study early, I remembered, oh, it's my week to get donuts. I forgot. So now I have to go and get the donuts, and I'm late. So I've got a box of donuts on the car seat with my Bible and notes. I have a donut in one hand and a cup of coffee in another hand, and I'm driving my manual transmission Z28. And, uh, you know, it's like uh, pea soup fog. And you know when you've got that nice car, you can kind of do second or third gear the whole way and just sort of roll through some stop signs, and all of a sudden the red lights are behind me in the fog, and uh, roll down the window, and he says, uh, son, do you know why I pulled you over? And I, with great honesty, said, yeah, I ran that stop sign. He said, which one? <laughs> uh, you know, it's a, it's a built-in human instinct to... Uh, want the police to stop armed gunmen in our neighborhood, isn't it? We cheer them on, but not when the red lights are behind our car. And uh, we love paved roads, but we complain about our property taxes. We want the terrorists to be stopped, but then we're really bugged by the really big bombs or just taking our shoes off at the airport. You know, it's just this tension and struggle that we have. But we really do want to live as civilized human beings in a well-ordered society. And that's what God wants for us as well. So we're in this series, Romans 12 through 16, and we've titled it Loving Well in a Culture of Pain and Hardship. And this morning we're in chapter 13 of Paul's epic letter to the Christians in Rome, Romans chapter 13. And this morning we're going to learn how to love well, learn how to love our government well in a complex, caustic political environment. Easy to open a can of worms here. You know, James has been up here kind of complaining and bragging about, you know, hey, I got, I got assigned circumcision and crucifixion and, uh, and annihilation. Easy stuff. Today we're going to talk about subjugation. So uh, I think James should have had this topic. Let him have let him all have all the really hard ones. So look at Romans 13 and verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. That's it. Simple. Straightforward. Let it sink in for just a moment. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Everyone. Subject to the authorities. It's heavy duty. And as I've been wrestling with this whole chapter, this text, this sermon, just questions kept coming into my mind, and I thought eventually those were going to be kind of, that's going to be the outline for today. Here are my questions. Why should we be subject to governing authorities? I know this idea of authority, as Tommy said, is really hard for us. Maybe particularly for those that... um, Uh, demographic people want to call millennials. I I really hate labels. But a lot of you have been burned by authority 
institutions. You're kind of done with it. And this, this is going to be maybe a hard chapter. But hang in there with me. Why, why should we submit to authority? Secondly, what happens if I ignore authority? I think the chapter addresses it. And my question is, what is the role of authority? What's their job? And then my final question, though I'm sure there's many, many more that even this message will prompt, is are there limits to authority? And I just want to say as we get started, context, context, context. You have to look at Romans 13 in its context. And if you have your Bibles open, if you'll look at the paragraph right before Romans 13, the text that James taught on last week so beautifully, it's Heading is titled in the NIV, Love in Action. That's what this is all about. And the paragraph right after the text I'm going to teach on this morning is called, Love Fulfills the Law. We're learning how to love well in a culture of pain and hardship. Whatever we take away from Romans 13 this morning is it talks about being subject to the governing authorities. The bookends are love. We're learning how to love. Do not allow this passage to pull you away from we're learning how to love. What does love look like, practically speaking, in the context of authority around us? But look at Romans 13 in the midst of the whole letter and look at this passage in the context of the entire story of the people of Israel and now us as the followers of Jesus. Paul is aware of that grand narrative. We have to keep it in mind as we work work through this. He's writing to Christians that are working out, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. What does that look like to live in a world where we claim Jesus is our Lord? And Caesar is not. So Romans 13 is a classic piece of Jewish writing. It's all the way through the Old Testament. They're well-versed in it, about how to live wisely under alien rule. Because you know the Jews, they have lived under Pharaoh in Egypt as slaves, oppressed by the Assyrians, then dragged off into exile by the Babylonians, and then now the empire of Rome. They've had to learn how to be, a, how to be a, a faithful follower of God in the context of alien rule. First Peter 2.11, he writes to believers, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. That's what we are. We're foreigners and exiles in this world. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. You know, dictators have used Romans 13 to oppress their people. Adolf Hitler, Nazi Germany, used Romans 13 to justify the annihilation of millions of Jews. P.T. Bota in South Africa, Pretoria, and the Afrikaner Calvinists used Romans 13 to justify apartheid. Paul never intended this text to be unqualified support for an evil empire, though dictators have tried. He knew that good governments can go really bad. So here's my first question. Why submit to authority? 
Verse 1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So here's the double edge. Authorities are in place by God's decree for order in the world. They have authority. But get this, God delegates it. It is delegated temporary authority. I want to pause just for a moment. Submission to authority is built into the system that God has designed. It's it's everywhere. And you can pass this message not only through the filter of our relationship to government, but submission to authority is built into family, it's built into work, it's built into school, it's built into sports, and it's built into the military, and it's built into our government. The U.S. Constitution details delegated, limited authority. It's the world that you and I live in. It's the air that we breathe. So the state is a divine institution with a divine authority, according to Paul. Proverbs 8.15 says, By me kings reign, and rulers issue decrees that are just. Now remember, the Caesars, the emperors, they began to consider themselves divine. And they began to accept and legislate worship. This is the world Paul lived in. So this text is really quite subversive. If, if, if what Paul is saying is true, then these Caesars are receiving a significant demotion. Your power is delegated by God. You remember Jesus in front of Pilate. And Pilate's confused. Jesus, you're here, you're on trial. They want to crucify you. And he says to Jesus, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And in a moment of maybe the most courageous response of, 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 of just settled understanding and wisdom, Jesus looks at Pilate. And he says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Pilate misused the authority that was, that was, that was granted to him. But nevertheless, God delegated it to Pilate. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul goes on with this amazing prayer for the people that they would understand the power of the resurrection. And Paul says, that's that's the power that, that, um, that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority that exists. We live in the right now. Jesus is right now the reigning, ruling Lord of the universe. So Paul's statement here is the ideal. But you and I know this is not the reality. But we should want it to, we should want it to work. We, we should want God's plan to work. So secondly, my second question, what if I ignore authority? Remember the context. Paul is writing to the Romans, Christians in Rome, who have recently experienced this new freedom in Christ where Jesus is Lord. And maybe they've gotten a little loose and disrespectful of Caesar. 
Currently, at the same time, there's Jews who have gotten fed up with his oppression, and now they've formed vigilante groups that are using violence to undermine the rule of Caesar. In fact, around 40, 50 AD, Claudius was so angry that he expelled all the Jews from Rome. Get them out of here. And Paul is saying to the Christians, he wrote Romans, late 50s, same time. Hey, don't get caught up in all that. I'm I'm, I'm giving you a caution here. Verse 2. Consequently, Paul says, here's the consequence for ignoring authority. Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Remember, this is not unqualified for support for governments doing whatever they want to do. But a straightforward reading of the text is what happens if I ignore the authority? Well, you're rebelling against God. You'll bring judgment on yourself. God has designed good government to bring order and peace and sometimes appropriate punishment. Brings me to my third question. So... What is the role of government? Why why does it exist? I think Peter addresses that in verse 4, which I just read. Look at it. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. That's their job description right there. The job description of authority, the job description of government is to be God's servant. For your good. Now, let me read the rest of verse 4 again. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. Some people think that's a justification for capital punishment, but we're not going to delve into that. Save that for your grounded group. (laughs) They're God's servants. Second time he's used that phrase, God's servants. Agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Remember last week, look at chapter 12. James is talking about this love in action, the flavor of love. He said in verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends. Don't don't seek to hold it in your own hands. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So in the meantime, he's delegated that responsibility for punishment to the government. The state has authority. But you notice that? He said God's servant three times. Called the authority God's servant. It's a high calling. The bar is really high. You've been elected You've been put into this position 
as a servant of the Almighty God. And the word that's used is diakonia. It's the same word that we use to talk about a pastor. It's interesting to think about that. Pastors, servants of the word, servants of the church, ministers in the church. That's what government officials are. That's what all positions of authority really are. So the state has authority and has a ministry, both from the hand of God. And it's vital for normal human life that authorities carry out their responsibility. So I have one more question. Are there limits to the authority? Romans 13.4 again. Sometimes governments do not serve the common good. I think one of the best examples is the character Daniel. You read about his story in the book of Daniel. And of course, Daniel was a young man with some of his friends who was kidnapped, made slaves, and taken with the whole nation into exile into Babylon. And they were trained to be leaders in this oppressive alien government. And if you read the story of Daniel in chapter 1, you discover that Daniel excelled as a leader in this foreign oppressive government. And he quickly began to rise in authority and leadership. And in fact, King Darius loved him, was impressed by him. And it says to us in chapter 6 and verse 4, No, verse 3. So Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And some of the other administrators had gotten jealous. And of course, that never happens in sort of a a company or a school or an athletic team or the government that, that people would be power hungry and would be jealous of other people in their promotions. That never happens today, of course. But uh, they were so jealous that they began to try to figure out a way to undermine him and get him fired. It says, verse 3, Now Daniel so distinguished himself, I I read that, verse 4, At this the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. This is young Daniel, a slave administrator in an oppressive foreign regime doing his job well. So they created a plot to get Darius to make a law where you couldn't pray to anyone except Darius for 30 days. And this became a line in the sand for Daniel. And he said, I'll be obedient in all that I do, but I will not pray to Darius. He's not the Lord. And those who broke the law were thrown into the lion's den, and Daniel ends up in the lion's den. And, of course, God rescues him. 
changes Darius's life. And this uh, picture over here is, sits above my desk. It's Daniel in that lion's den. And after the service, I hope, you know, in conversation, you'll come and just walk by it. And, and take a look at the lions. And look, look, at, look at their eyes. Where are they looking? And I'll just say they're not looking at Daniel. And, and notice his countenance. It's a countenance that I think was very similar to Jesus in front of Pilate. So right now, God wants us to be good citizens like Daniel, good leaders, even in the government, and to support what good government can do. But there could be a time when dissent and disobedience is necessary. There's a long history of civil disobedience in the scripture. Way back when Egypt was in, uh, when, when Israel was in Egypt, slaves under Pharaoh, the, Egypt, the uh, Jewish midwives decided that they would not obey the law, and they refused to abort their baby boys. Back in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar set up a golden image and told the entire nation to bow down to this image. And if you refused, you'd be thrown into the fiery furnace. And Shadrach and Meshach, Abednego, friends of Daniel, also being trained to lead, said, we will not bow down to that image. And as they're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace, they say, listen, our God can save us. But even if he chooses not to save us, we will be loyal to him. And we will not bow down to your image. After the resurrection, the new church is growing. And Peter and John and other apostles are preaching the good news about Jesus. And it's got the, the Jewish religious authorities up in a tizzy. And they arrest him, they beat him, and they command him, you will not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they said, listen, you know, should, should, we, should we obey you, human authorities, or should we be allegiant to God? We'll, we'll choose God over you. And you know all of them lost their lives for their faith. Obedience to a perverse government is not commanded in Romans 13. We ought to submit to government right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. And someday, someday, the scriptures tell us that God will hold all leaders, all authority, all government accountable for how they serve God with their delegated authority. In fact, Philippians 2 tells us that there will come a day when every single knee will bow in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I say to all of us, hey, let's get it over with now. Yes? That's a day that is out there that the scriptures say, we live in the already but still the not yet. The not yet is going to come. But friends, the scripture tells us that it is going to come. So the church partly exists to remind government and authorities, empire, of their role. Here's a wonderful quote from theologian scholar N.T. Wright. Leaders are responsible before God to exercise justice, to order society, and to defend the vulnerable. 
When leaders fail to do this, it is the role of the people of God to remind them through critique, through non-collaboration, and he says, if necessary, through martyrdom. Now, may I say, that's a really heavy world. Might I remind us we live in the United States of America, an incredibly blessed and wonderful country where this idea is so far removed from us. But if you're a Christian in Rome, when 10 years later Nero began to brutally execute and persecute Christians, they they read it differently. If you're a Christian in Syria, you read this text very differently. If you happen to be struggling how to follow Jesus in North Korea, Romans 13 is serious business for us. Very different. John Stott says this. He says, civil disobedience must be submission to God, not defiance of government. Now, that's a, that's a subtle phrase I want you to really think about. Civil disobedience must be submission to God and not defiance of government. The difference. So let's wrap it up. How do we learn to love the government? Verse 6 of Romans 13. So this is why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Paul says, give to everyone what you owe them. If it's taxes, pay your taxes. If it's revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then give honor. He says in verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Love uh, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So, Jesus is Lord. We ought to refrain from picking unnecessary battles with lesser lords. Maybe this can put our concern into perspective in the climate in which we live. There's going to be accountability of all authority. God says, leave room for my vengeance. Don't worry. Maybe we shouldn't spend quite so much time on those lesser lords. And I'd like to give a caution, too, about enmeshing our love of our country with obedience to God. That entanglement has made our dialogue with one another, particularly in the church, and might I say particularly among evangelicals, if you understand that term, those who say, I am born again. I follow Jesus as my Lord. I submit to the authority of the scripture. I believe the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells my life and guides me. Then another caution, not everything deserves outrage. We, we, we live in a, in a combative outrage culture. And friends, our cell phones though they've brought important accountability to authority, cell phone cameras and social media have just ignited a firestorm 
that has made us edgy and nervous and our triggers are so quick now to go after every little offense around us. And maybe what Paul is telling us as the family of God, as those who follow Jesus, as those who know that Jesus is Lord, that we'll put our trust in him and not everything is going to bother us and cause us to panic and have to tell the world all the things that we think are wrong. You know, when you open up this can of worms, and certainly this is a can of worms, right? I mean, in your grounded group or at a family dinner or you're on social media, I mean, you almost can't say anything without the attack or the opinions coming. Maybe when you open up this can of worms and those that follow Jesus have tasted the flavor of love and have learned that in the midst of learning how to submit to government, we're going to determine that love is going to be our first step and our second step and our last step. We're going to love each other and we're going to love those in government because Paul says the greatest command, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So I commend you to your grounded groups to talk, but please love each other and love our government. Let's bring the band up and we'll pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for teaching us. Now, guide us as we consider where the lines in the sand are. And then you guide us by your wonderful Holy Spirit to have grace in our speech and love for each person around us, including all of our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.